just make a little space there in case I get charismatic. Thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us in worship. I, I really enjoy the worship times here. I feel like that's um, something God has really blessed us with the last couple of years. Um, uh, if I'm hoarse, it's because I was singing so loudly, Michael Shirk. <laughs> uh, so I know we've sat for a little while um, listening to this last session, and um, I'm not. I'm going to try not to keep you long through this, but some very practical things that God has for us here in First in Timothy that I want to look at. Why don't we stand? And we're going to read um, part of chapter 6, most of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. Just a little bit of background to this. Uh, so 1 Timothy was a pastoral letter written near the end of Paul's life. Uh, the letters to Timothy convey maybe a, a special weight of concern uh, that were born from years of witnessing the progression of ministry and of the New Testament church. The New Testament church was no longer in its initial fledgling stage, but it had come through a lot. And uh, in particular, in, in this letter, Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with some problems that had arisen there, some wrong doctrines and ideas that had crept into the church. And Timothy was a young church leader who had... Uh, who had gotten to see the progression of the New Testament church over the, the last um, 20 years or so, uh, maybe a little less than that. And uh, he was here at Ephesus trying to bring, trying to correct course. And so Paul wrote this letter to help him know how to address those issues that had arisen. Um, maybe we should also remind ourselves that about 25 years after this letter was written, uh, the church at Ephesus received a message directly from Jesus through the Apostle John. It was a message that Jesus gave to John for Ephesus. And in that message, he told them the one thing that he had against them was that they had left their first love. So some of what we see here in Timothy is maybe the, the things that were contributing to them leaving their first love, to them being distracted from the essentials. Um, and today we get to look on, a couple thousand years later, we get to look on and we get to see what the things are that, that needed to be addressed there for them to correct course. And hopefully we can correct course so that we can stay centered on the essentials, love from a good heart, pure conscience, and a sincere faith. So with that in mind, let's read um, chapter 6, starting in the, the last Line of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and for what you teach us through your word. We want to be conformed to it, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit today and show us Um, how to value godliness as gain. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So he starts out here in chapter 6 after um, writing a whole bunch of practical instructions to uh, the church at Ephesus through Timothy. In fact, there are critics who look at the book of Timothy and they say, um, maybe it wasn't written by Paul, even though it says it was, because... It doesn't sound like Paul. Paul often addresses the the weighty um, heart issues of the gospel. And in Timothy, we have a whole list of things that that people need to to do. Um, So they say it doesn't sound like him. So when when he tells Timothy, teach and urge these things, what's he referring to? Well, just looking back over the book of 1 Timothy, um, love from a good heart, a pure conscience, sincere faith, faith and a good conscience, to make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for everyone. He wants men everywhere to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The women likewise to adorn themselves in modesty and self-control, adorned with good works. For the overseers specifically, to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not drunkards, not violent or quarrelsome, not lovers of money. Managing their own households well. To the deacons specifically, not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. To their wives, to be dignified, not slanderers, faithful in all things. And he says, I'm writing, in chapter 3, he says, I'm writing all this stuff to you so that if I delay in coming to you, you will know how to act in the house of God. How you're supposed to conduct your life in the church. Avoid irreverent, silly myths. But rather train yourselves in godliness. And he compares the training ourselves in godliness to, uh, to bodily training, to bodily exercise, which he says has some profit. But the training ourselves in godliness is profitable in every way. He says, be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that everyone can see your progress. And then he gives them some practical instructions for how they're to relate to each other, treating older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger as sisters in all purity, and how to honor the widows and the elders. And, And he kind of wraps it up saying, if there's someone who continues in sin, rebuke them in front of everyone. Keep these rules without partiality. Don't participate in other people's sin. Keep yourselves pure. Teach and urge these things. And then he says, if anyone doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine of godliness, he's puffed up. He's inflated. So the sound words, he uses a word that actually means healthy. The healthy words of Jesus Words that bring health to our spiritual life. If someone is opposed to those, if someone is bringing a doctrine that is different from those, he is puffed up and conceited. He doesn't understand anything. He has an unhealthy craving. And again, that is a word that means literally not healthy. It's an, like a sick desire. Have you ever seen um, the, the experiments on lab rats where they, they give them drugs uh, they make drugs readily available and, and when the rats start tasting these drugs and, and discovering the physiological effects they have, they can't help themselves. They start going back more and more. And in the meanwhile, the very thing that they're craving and going back for is killing them. But they can't help themselves because they've developed this unhealthy craving, this sick desire. And he's saying these teachers have the same kind of unhealthy desire for quarrels about words. Quarrels that produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. This is one of the hallmark signs that what is being taught, or we could say what we are focusing on, is contrary to the gospel. Rather than producing unity and fruitfulness, it produces all sorts of friction and confusion and chaos. If what we are focusing on is producing that, then we had better examine it very carefully to see whether it is lining up with the healthy words that Jesus taught. And then he finishes with this line. These teachers are imagining that godliness is a means to gain. These teachers actually saw godliness as being a means to personal gain. We probably immediately think of financial gain, like you know the health and wealth preachers that are out there promising people healing or multiply bank accounts if they will sow into their ministry. Um, or maybe we think even of the preachers who have large followings and who uh, gain social status and fame through the crowds that follow them as they parade on the stage in their fine clothes. But maybe it's even a lot more subtle than that. Maybe it's the desire to preach a sermon that will really gain me some respect or to really, you know, share some wisdom with other people that will um, make me look good. To be known as a person who has a lot of wisdom or insight or to have a counseling ministry that's famously successful. And this warning is repeated through the New Testament. Um, In Titus, it says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, people who were teaching the law wrongfully. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. There it is again. Shameful gain 
what they ought not to teach. And Peter tells uh, the shepherds to shepherd the flock of God, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So these people were looking at the gospel and you could say at godliness as a means for personal gain. And it was a distortion of what the gospel was supposed to be. So what does it mean when I start thinking that way or, or living with godliness, with the gospel being a means of personal gain? It means that we, we ignore the foundational teachings of Jesus in regard to not laying up treasure for ourselves on earth. And his teachings on forsaking ourselves and our possessions to be his followers. It means that we downplay the theology of suffering that is central to the gospel. And, and it's found all through the epistles. The, the foundational theology of suffering, of following Christ in his steps that as he suffers, we're going to suffer too. And it means that we love the blessings of God, the blessings that God gives, rather than loving God himself. It means we reduce the gospel from the message of reconciliation with God and of eternal joys in his presence to a message of earthly betterment. That's what godliness as gain, as a means to gain. Godliness as a means to gain is. It corrupts the message of the gospel. Whereas Paul said that their life as apostles was full of trials and sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 4, he gives a a long description of, of what their life, what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to be ministers of the gospel. It meant that they were uh, that they were afflicted and they were cast down and, and they suffered. They were perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in their body the, the death of Lord Jesus. So that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in their bodies. That doesn't sound like someone who views the gospel as a means to personal gain. That sounds like someone who's willing to give it all up for the sake of the gospel. Because they look at the future gain, not gain here in this life. So, in verse 16, chapter 4, He says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about an entire lifetime of suffering, suffering persecution, suffering loss, really giving up everything. This light momentary affliction is what he calls it, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, uh, that are unseen, are eternal. So he says, while we're in these bodies, we're groaning, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's what it looks like when godliness is not a means to gain, but we see godliness as gain. And Paul makes that contrast. He doesn't say, These teachers think that godliness is the means to gain, but actually godliness is the means to loss. No, the opposite of that is that godliness is itself gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And he says, because we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out. And the majority of what we work for here in this life, we're going to leave behind. 
It's all just going to go away. Have you noticed there's no storage buildings in the cemetery? As I think John Piper said, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. People aren't carrying their stuff with them. Not in any way. We don't even bury someone with a suitcase. Because we know that even their body is just going back to dust and everything that they've done stays behind. If you want a, a, a deeper look at that, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Where... The man who built arguably the greatest kingdom in the history of the world concluded that it was all just um, basically a waste of time because he saw that what you work for, what you spend the majority of your life working for, you leave behind to others. And so Paul is using that same argument. You're not going to take anything with you. You didn't come into the world bringing your stuff. You didn't bring anything with you. And when you leave, you're not going to take it with you. So be content with godliness because godliness is what is going to endure into eternal life. This is also why Jesus told the people who were following him, who were interested in becoming his disciples because they saw there was free bread and fish. He said, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for what endures to eternal life. And he also gave the parable of a man who was digging in a field and found a treasure. And for joy of, of the treasure that he found, he went and sold everything that he had. He got rid of everything so that he could find that treasure, so that he could own that treasure. And he says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. If you're going to experience, if you're going to be a participant in the kingdom of heaven, it means forsaking everything in exchange for the kingdom. And somehow these teachers had come into Ephesus with a distorted form of the words of Jesus. And they were seeing godliness, seeing the gospel as a means to personal gain, as the means to climbing a ladder of wealth and social status and success. So he says, be content with food and clothing. I always think it's interesting that he doesn't include like housing in there because I think that would be an essential as well. But be content with food and clothing. When God meets our basic needs, be content with that. We are absolutely bombarded in this generation, probably more than any generation in the history of the world, with propaganda that's telling us that we need stuff. The allure of things, things that we don't need, is... It's woven into the DNA of our culture. Um, according to Statistica.com, in 2020, nearly a quarter trillion dollars will be spent on ads to tell us what we need to buy. That's really what it comes down to. A quarter trillion dollars going toward ads that tell us what we need, what we should want, what we should be buying. It's all around us and, and we become so inoculated that it's a wonder that we can even recognize covetousness when it comes up in our hearts because it's, it's, it's all around us. It's like part of our culture. That desire for things, the desire for wealth, the desire for riches. And Paul goes on to give a stronger warning even against that. He said, those who desire to be rich will fall into, into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Does that sound like something you want? Temptation and a snare, senseless and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. 
if that's what we pursue. That sounds really harsh. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. When we give ourselves over to the love of money and its pursuit, we give ourselves over to temptations that we didn't need to deal with. We give ourselves over to traps that we're not strong enough often to get out of on our own. Just just the other day, I responded to a call where um, a patient had overdosed on presumably heroin. Um, she was maybe a minute or two away from, from death. Um, she wasn't breathing, hadn't been breathing for a little while. And we brought her back. And I, I was just so struck with, with the, the sadness of being trapped by a desire that is so strong that you know, as you're taking that, that narcotic, as you're taking that opiate, you know that this might kill you. In fact, you have maybe some Narcan nearby, something that can reverse the drug if, if it goes too far. But by the time you figure out that, that you're too far gone, you probably won't be able to self-administer it anyway. And you know that this might end your life, but you're so trapped by that desire that you can't help yourself. You can't get out of that on your own. And you wake up to a room full of faces and you're like, what's going on? Fear in your eyes. And the first thing they tell you is, you almost died. You were this close to being dead. If we would have gotten here a couple minutes later, you wouldn't be here. And is that any different from the love of money and the way it takes us down a road where we are trapped by the craving, by that unhealthy craving for things and for more, for success? And we get to the place where we can't help ourselves anymore. And sometimes we need somebody else to step into our lives and say, let me help you walk through this. Let me help you see what's going on. Because we, don't, we often don't even see it in ourselves. He says, through this craving for money, for success, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many pangs or many sorrows. The love of money and its pursuit ultimately ends up in emptiness and depression, disillusionment and unbelief. Where we, where we trade our love for things for the love for Jesus. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Recognize the danger of the love of money and of its pursuit and actually run the other way. This, this word flee doesn't mean just recognize there's a problem and change course. No, it's, it's like run scared. See that this thing is after you. It's in pursuit of you and you run away. Do things that will take you in the opposite direction so that you can escape. Instead of pursuing those things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Arm yourself with a mindset of warfare. The mindset of a soldier who endures hardships so that he can win a battle. This is how we need to approach the love of money in our lives. We arm ourselves with the mindset of a soldier who sees this is actually a serious battle and if I don't run away from it, it's going to take me down. 
take hold of eternal life. And then a few verses down, he says, as for the rich in this, in this world, because there are people who are wealthy, charge them. Give them these instructions. Now, I wonder who we think about when we think of the rich in this world. Probably 90% of us think of somebody else. Maybe, I don't know, Luke or John or some, you know, somebody more wealthy than, than ourselves. But actually, we are among the very wealthiest people in the world. If, if we look, look at a global scale, if you have $3,200 in assets, $3,200, if that's what you're worth, you're in the top half. Okay? So that probably takes care of most of us here. We're at least in the top half. If you're worth 69000 and these statistics are like three or four years old, if you're worth 69000 you are in the top 10% in the world. So I think that we should probably just look at ourselves, okay? If we have a car and a phone and a computer, we're among the very wealthiest in the world. And not to mention our lifestyle. We live so comfortably. We just, we don't think of the possibility of going hungry tomorrow because we have what we need and we have a lot of surplus. So let's look at ourselves. Don't look over there at somebody else who has a little bit more than you do. This is what he was supposed to say to the rich people. Don't be haughty. Because we do tend to be haughty. We think that we worked hard for what we got. And we deserve what we got because we worked hard for it. Nebuchadnezzar said the same thing when he looked out over his kingdoms. He said, isn't this the great Babylon which I built by my mighty power? I put a lot of hard work and sweat into building this kingdom. And wow, look at what it is. And he brought God's swift judgment onto himself. The king of Assyria said something very similar. He said, by, my str- by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I have good... Uh, business sense, in his case, it was good uh, military strategy to take over other kingdoms. But he boasted that it was his understanding, his wisdom, his strength that had accomplished the things that he had. And devastating judgment from God ensues because of that mindset. And for us as Americans, we, we have the same mentality. It's, isn't this business this home, this car, this whatever we have, isn't this the work of my hands? I, I got here by my own strength, by my own accomplishments, by hard work and sweat. We're not really so different from Nebuchadnezzar or the king of Assyria, are we? But he says, don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on uncertain riches. There's a key. Understand that riches are uncertain. The things that you have... You have because you were given them. 1 John 2 says, The world passes away and its desires, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Jesus said, Don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth where moth corrupts and thieves break through and steal, but lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. In modern terms, we're, we're just one economic downturn from losing pretty much everything that we have. I, and I think maybe we're becoming more aware of that with the fragility of our economy that's been shown through uh, the pandemic. But let's, let's not have that mindset. Let's not have that awareness just because the economy has been shaken. Let's have that mindset because God says 
that the things that we worked so hard for and spent our life collecting are uh, they, they are they have wings. The riches that we have, the possessions that we have, have wings. And he calls it the uncertain hope of riches. Don't set your hope on uncertain riches, but set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the antidote for trusting in our own possessions is to set our hope in God. And the antidote, the key to contentment is to constantly remind ourselves that what we do have is a gift from God. He has given us richly all things to enjoy. And if we keep reminding ourselves of that, it really comes down to thankfulness. We won't set our hope on uncertain riches. And he gives them some more practical advice. If you are wealthy, and we are, if we are wealthy, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure for yourself as a foundation, good foundation for the future, so that you may take hold of what is truly life. Godliness with contentment, that's what he says is great gain. That's what is life. So, as a means of practical application to my life, maybe some questions to ask myself. Do I have a subtle mindset of godliness being a means to gain? Either financial gain, like if I, if I live right, God's going to bless me, or social gain, if I live right, people are going to bless me. Maybe that one's more applicable to us. We can easily fall into a trap of godliness being a means to personal gain rather than godliness being gain. What practical steps am I taking to flee the love of money and its pursuit? If you look over your life over the last five years, do you see yourself taking any practical steps that show that you are running away from that snare? What am I doing to cultivate contentment? Is my life marked by gratefulness? Or does it look like I'm always needing more than what I have? Am I always dissatisfied and wanting the next achievement? Is it obvious to onlookers, when people look at my life, do they see that I believe that godliness with contentment is great gain? Or do they simply see godliness is a means to gain for me? Jesus said we can't love God and money. We can't love God and possessions. It's binary. We'll love one and hate the other. Is it immediately obvious, looking at my life, which one I love and which one I hate? 1 John two fifteen through 17 we'll close with these verses. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever.